You're listening to In My Father's House with our pastor and teacher, Mike Venezia, Senior Pastor of Harvest Christian Fellowship in New York City, New York. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. In my Father's house, where I long to be, oh, my heart will not be troubled. I remember what you said. But his bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Listen, no other motive for serving God will do or be accepted by him. What might be some of the other motives that people serve God? Well, to be seen of men, to receive the applause of men, to receive the acclamations of men, the approval of men. But none of those things really count in the sight of God. When you do a good deed, what's your motivation? Sure, you could say it's all for God's glory, but is that really true? In today's message, Pastor Mike will ask you to really look at the heart behind all you do for Christ. Is it really coming from a place of love and gratitude for all Jesus has done for you? God sees what you do in His name and He will reward you, so don't waste time seeking the approval of others. Let your good deeds be done with one reason in mind, the love and grace of Jesus. Now here's Pastor Mike in the book of 1 Peter chapter 1 with his message, Christ's Precious Blood. I remember what you said, you returned that I might live in my Father's So we're in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 21. We're going to talk about the effect that Christ's blood have upon us, the results of Christ's blood, the blessings that we receive because of that shed blood. So chapter 1, beginning in verse 17. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves Throughout the time, that is the time that we spend while we're here upon the earth, of your state here in fear, or rather in reverence, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb without blemish and without spot. The idea here is that Christ was sinless. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Okay, let's back up a little bit. I want to remind you, we were talking about and emphasizing how that Peter was writing to persecuted believers. So in this section of his epistle, he's writing to encourage them. And how did he go about seeking to encourage them? 
Well, by reminding them of their blessed hope. And what is the blessed hope? That is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Christ's return to the earth to establish his kingdom upon the earth. And listen, during which time there's not going to be any persecution of Christians. In fact, there's not going to be any fear. It's going to be all peace. There'll be no sickness. There'll be no longer any sorrow. And what a time to look forward to as Christians. That is when Christ comes back a second time to establish his kingdom of righteousness upon the earth. And so, as we look to that event taking place in the near future, it's a hope that dispels fear and inspires Christians to live righteously. Now, we talked a lot about this last time together. In fact, there's a cross-reference. I had mentioned that he that hath this hope, that is the hope of Christ's second coming, purifies himself even as Christ is pure. So that's the effect that the second coming or the anticipation of the second coming taking place should have upon every believer because we don't exactly know when Jesus is going to return. And so we're living in anticipation that he can come at any moment. Notice that this section that we're treating is written under the heading, or at least in my Bible, living before God our Father. The idea here is living before God our Father righteously. And remember, I had mentioned that as we anticipate Christ's second coming, it should have that kind of an effect upon us, that influence of living righteously. But then, that raises the question, who sets the standard for righteousness, that is the righteousness that is accepted by God the Father, who judges all men? Whose example should we follow? Should we follow the example of our pastor? Should we follow the example of a Sunday school teacher? Should we follow the example of some Christian friend? Well, listen, I hope all of the four mentioned are good examples for us, in fact, to be able to follow. But I think we have to look further than that for the answer to that question. Notice, go back to our text there in verse 17. And we are told in the first part, And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work. So the idea here is that God the Father is the judge. And we must abide by his standards for righteousness as it is revealed by him through his word, the Bible. But then also notice we are told that he is impartial. That is, he has no favorites. He has no double standards. He doesn't have one set of rules for one individual and then another set of rules for other individuals. As is indicated there in verse 17, when we are told that God, the Father, judges without partiality. You see, he judges righteously according to our actions. You see, to him, it's not who you are that is important in his eyes, but rather what you are. God doesn't care if you're some big shot preacher who has your own radio broadcast or TV program or you're the pastor of a mega church. God doesn't care if you're a head of some large ministry organization. He doesn't is not concerned by those things. Each day, we must, as Christians, those of us who have taken the name of Christ, must pass the same test. And what is a part of passing that test? Well, 
Our single purpose is to glorify Him in everything that we say and everything that we uh, do. We are exhorted along those lines here in our text. Notice there in verse 17, can also be translated, and I rather like this translation, pass the time of your sojourning here on the earth in reverence. I like that translation. In other words, we must demonstrate a humble reverence for the Holy One, trying to live like Jesus lived. Because you see, He is our pattern, and nothing less than that. And yes, if you make that kind of a commitment to live your life the way that Jesus did, you may be criticized. You may be told that you're too narrow-minded. You might be placed in a category of being fanatical. But remember, God is your judge. Don't be concerned about what other people say or what other people think. We are to serve Him from the heart. Let me give you a cross-reference for this in the book of Ephesians. In chapter 6, in verse 6, there Paul tells us that we are to serve the Lord, not with eye service, as man pleases, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Listen, no other motive for serving God will do or be accepted by Him. What might be some of the other motives that people serve God? Well, to be seen of men to receive the applause of men, to receive the acclamations of men, the approval of men. But none of those things really count in the sight of God. Remember Jesus himself said in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 6, in verse 2, instructed us on the way that we are to serve the Lord, doing charitable deeds and such, whatever we do in the name of Christ. He says, therefore, when you do your charitable deeds, do not sound the trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say that they have received their reward. So what's the question here? Well, am I pleasing God? Is my life all that it should be, that he wants it to be? Listen, it's only possible way to know God's blessing and fruitfulness is to serve Him with a pure heart. Now, in verse 18, let's go back to our text. Peter reminds us, there in verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold. The idea here, Peter is reminding us, that God's gracious provision of salvation is purely by grace alone. I mean, Ephesians chapter 2, for example, tells us that before we made that decision for Christ, before our conversion experience, we were lost. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were alienated from the life of God. But when we received Christ, God redeemed us. God ransomed us. God purchased us from the wicked one and from our sin. And this purchase gang is forever. The devil cannot beg, steal, or buy you back. Oh, but yes, he can, if you let him, influence you. So you better stay close to the Lord, right? You better use all of the resources that God has made available to you so that you don't fall prey to the influences of the devil. But nevertheless, we are God's eternal possession, delivered from our vain 
empty manner of living. And notice, we are told, received by tradition from our fathers. Notice in the latter part of verse 18. The things that we pass along to our children. That empty life passed on to children by their unbelieving parents. That is, worldly living, having no respect to the claims that God has upon our souls. You know, it's amazing to me how many parents provide for their physical and mental welfare of their children. And listen, there's nothing wrong with that. But there's an absence of and a neglect of also providing spiritual things in the lives of their children. Establishing a godly heritage within their lives. What a terrible error that is. Listen, if parents would only realize the most important duty that they have as parents is raising their children and directing them to Jesus Christ. And so possessions, wealth, things, all of which will pass away, but a godly heritage will last for eternity and pay spiritual and eternal dividends. And listen, here's the good news. It's never too late. If this is something that you've been neglecting as a parent, the good news, it's never too late. So how can you do this? Well, let them see what a Christian is by observing your life in your home. And how do we do that? Well, the way that we speak to our children, the way that we speak to our wife, the way that we speak to our husband, the way that we love them, the way that we provide for them, the time that we spend, let them see the time that we spend daily, regularly, devoting that time to knowing the Lord better, reading our Bibles, spending some time in prayer. All of those things have a tremendous impact and influence on the members of our uh, family. So listen, don't be a parent that is more interested in making money than in rearing your children for God. Because money cannot buy salvation. You know, I heard this story about a London newspaper that offered a prize for the best definition of money. The prize-winning statement was, and I think that this was a great response, said, and I quote, Money is the universal passport for everything except heaven and the universal provider for everything except happiness. And I thought, what a great definition of what money is all about. Let me give you a cross-reference for this. In 1 Timothy, in chapter 6, in verses 9 and 10, we are there warned by Paul in our seeking to accumulate great amounts of money and its effect upon those who do that. 1 Timothy, in chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money, notice it doesn't say money in and of itself, but it says for the love of money, the pursuit of money, doing everything that we could possibly do to acquire more and more money. So for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness, and they've pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Now, unfortunately, many have learned this truth too late, or the hard way, and they've experienced great sorrow. They pursued acquiring great sums of money, the love of money, 
the itch for more and more. Listen, that kind of an attitude can sink you. It can have a damaging effect upon your relationship with God. It can be a curse or a blessing. It's what you make of it. I mean, you can take your money that you've acquired, that God has placed in your hand, and you could use it, you know, yes, to provide for your family and, and to make them as comfortable as you possibly can. That's a great way to use your money. But then you can also use the money that God has provided for you to further God's kingdom. You could support your local church. You can support some Christian organizations. You can come alongside them to help build the kingdom of God. I can't think of a better way to use uh, your money than that. You know, so once again, it could be a curse or a blessing. It's what you make of it. It's the way that you use your money. You know, there's this poem, and in this poem, money is speaking, describing itself. And it goes like this. Dug from the mountainside, or washed in the glen, servant am I, or master of men. Earn me, I bless you. Steal me, I curse you. Grasp me and hold me, a fiend shall possess you. Lie for me, die for me. Cover me, take me. Angel or devil, I am just what you make me. And so the whole idea here is your attitude about money and how you use it. That's the issue. That's the question that has to be addressed. Now, with that said, Peter goes on then in verse 19. Let's go back to our text. He says, But with the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb without blemish and without spot. You know, just a little bit of background here. When the Jews would come into the temple to present their sacrifices, the animal sacrifices for the sin offering, it had to be an animal without blemish or without a spot. And that's the reason why Jesus is referred to as the Lamb of God without blemish or without spot. So all of what is said and instructed concerning the sacrifices for sin in the Old Testament was a type of Jesus Christ. It was looked forward to Christ. That is, without blemish, without spot, without sin. Only Jesus could fulfill God's requirement for an offering for sin. Why was that? Because no other man who ever lived or woman was without sin. The Bible tells us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So only Christ himself could satisfy God's divine ideal. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world without blemish or without spot. And so anyway, that's the way that he is depicted here. But rather, we've been redeemed, our salvation, by the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish, without spot. And so again, apart from the precious blood of Jesus that we shed for your redemption, my redemption, there can be no salvation for anyone. You see, it's not a way of many ways that this could have been accomplished, but it's the only way. Let me give you a couple of cross-references that validate this truth. Like, for example, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. In whom, that is in Christ, in context, we have redemption through his blood. Another cross-reference, the book of Colossians in chapter 1 and verse 20. There we are told he, that is Jesus in context, made peace through the blood of his cross. You see, Jesus is that Lamb of God who provides salvation for all. How? Through his shed 
blood. You know, there's this chorus that we sing. It's an old chorus. It was written by a fellow whose name was Robert Lowry. And it goes like this. What can wash away my sin? And then we respond, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Gang, listen. The cross was not an accident. It was not some tragedy. It was not some afterthought. But rather, notice what it says there in verse 20. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifested in these last times for you. So this is a reference to God's plan of salvation for mankind, which was worked out in the eternal counsels of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, before the foundation of the world, before the world was even spoken into existence. The cross was not an accident. The cross was not some tragedy. It was not some afterthought. But rather the cross is the centerpiece in God's eternal plan of redemption. And wicked men couldn't have nailed Jesus to the cross without his permission. Remember when Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate. And Pilate was threatening him about taking his life. And in John's Gospel in chapter 10 and verse 18, how did Jesus respond? He said, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. You see, God arranged all of the particulars that had taken place there at Calvary. Christ's death upon the cross. Redemption by blood is the grand theme of the Bible. Old Testament and New Testament alike. In fact, let's go back to the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus in chapter 17 and verse 11. There we are told it is the blood that maketh atonement for the soul. So in both Old and New Testament alike, redemption all hinges upon this divine truth. How marvelous is the plan of God. There's no slips. There's no failures. All the plotting of evil minds to crucify Jesus was all a part of God's divine provision of redemption for you and for me. So let me ask you this question. Do you know him as Lord? How would you respond to this question that is raised in the book of Philippians in chapter 1 in verse 21 by Paul the Apostle who says, For me to live is, and then you fill in the blank. You know, realistically, how would you fill in that blank? For me to live is, I mean, what is your life all about? What is your life all wrapped up in? Would you have to respond correctly? For me to live is money. For me to live is lust. For me to live is pleasure. Or would you be able to say, and God help us, would we be able to say with Paul, for me to live is Christ. Folks, I hope that's your testimony. In my Father's house There's a place for me In my Father's house Where I long to be We're so glad you joined us today on In My Father's House for our continuing verse-by-verse study through the book of 1 Peter. If you'd like to hear more messages from Pastor Mike, please visit our website at harvestnyc.org. You can also listen online by going to the Resources tab. 
Otherwise, you can find them on one place and search for Harvest Christian Fellowship or Pastor Mike Venizio. You can also watch our fully recorded services on Vimeo. Just follow the link at our website. Again, that's harvestnyc.org. We also invite you to subscribe to our podcast. Just search your favorite platform for In My Father's House with Mike Venizio. If you're ever in or near the Midtown Manhattan area and are looking for a church home, come visit us here at Harvest Christian Fellowship. We meet every week for worship, Bible study, and fellowship. It's easy to get here, and you can reserve your seat at our website. If you can't make it in person, that's okay. You are welcome to join us on the live stream to participate in our services virtually. Just follow the link at harvestnyc.org. If you happen to have any questions for us, please don't hesitate to give us a call at 212-247-1877. That number again is 212-247-1877. Or connect with us on Facebook and Instagram by following the links on our website. Again, that's harvestnyc.org. We're so glad you took the time to listen in today, and we hope you'll join us again next time on In My Father's House. Where I long to be, oh my heart, not be troubled.